I think ideally literature gives people a view to something better, to see the potentiality of their existence. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Jane Lieback. Jane published The Guardian under the name Jane Hamilton in 1994 when she was still in graduate school. Since then, she's gotten married, raised four children, and published a few dozen novels under both her own name and a pen name, as well as many short stories, poems, and essays. She has degrees in English and Religious Studies from Cornell University and a Master's in English from SUNY Rockport. She will talk your ear off about knitting socks, and she's currently training for her second marathon. In this episode, we discuss her work, Perdition's Heirs, a spiritual warfare fantasy available on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. It's the Two Jane Show today, <laughs> and I would love to hear what you've brought to read for us. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking it's like the opening of a joke, you know, Two Janes met on a podcast. And uh, okay. <laughs> So this is from um, the Siberiad. It's by Stanislav Lem. It's from the first Sally. In this story, um, up to this point, um, there are two inventors. They're both robots. There's Trull and there's Klopautius. Trull has been working on a robotic bard. Um, Klopautius is his rival and therefore has, you know, he's trying to kind of denigrate what Trull has um, has created, but he's about to fail. Just a minute, said Klopautius, annoyed. He was trying to think of a request as difficult as possible, aware that any argument on the quality of the verse the machine might be able to produce would be hard, if not impossible, to settle either way. Suddenly he brightened and said, have it compose a poem, a poem about a haircut, but lofty, noble, tragic, timeless, full of love, treachery, retribution, quiet heroism in the face of certain doom. Six lines, cleverly rhymed, and every word beginning with the letter S. And why not throw in a full exposition of the general theory of nonlinear automata while you're at it, growled Trorl. You can't give it such idiotic, but he didn't finish. A melodious voice filled the hall with the following. Seduced, Shaggy Samson snored. She scissored short. Sorely shorn, soon shackled slave, Samson sighed, silently scheming, sightlessly seeking some savage, spectacular suicide. Well, what do you say to that, said Trull, his arms folded proudly, but Klopautius was already shouting, now all in G, a sonnet, trochaic hexameter, about an old cyclotron who kept 16 artificial mistresses, blue and radioactive, had four wings, three purple pavilions, two lacquered chests, each containing exactly 1,000 medallions bearing the likeness of Tsar Murdochog the Headless. Grinding gleeful gears, Geronto Gyron grabbed, giggling gynecobalt 60 golems began the machine, but Troll leaped to the console, shut off the power, and turned, defending the machine with his body. (laughs) 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 My son, my 13-year-old son, has memorized that poem and every so often just trots it out. (laughs) You have just hit on like a nerdy gold mine. (laughs) 
This is amazing. The whole book is amazing. I, I love this book. So my father introduced me to this book, The Siberian, although it was a different edition of it, when I was maybe like, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And I didn't understand what I was reading at that point in time. I just liked the funny parts. Like the very first story, Troll um, invents a robot that is an idiot. Like it insists that two plus two is seven. And then the more that he kicks it and he gets mad at it, it like it gets to be like a really outraged idiot and it ends up like chasing them and bringing down a mountain on top of its head. And, you know, he's like, you have offended me for the second, third, fourth and seventh times, you know, and <laughs> it's <laughs> hilarious. The whole story. And there are so many stories in this book, and they're all so different. He predicted in one of the stories in this book, he predicted Twitter. He ends up with this. I know. And this was written in, I think, the 60s. There's a, they're trying to escape from this pirate. Wait, wait, wait. So let yes. me get this right. So we wrote yes. about an idiot and he wrote about Twitter. So it sounded like there's some connection here. Go on. <laughs> there are there are like, oh man, how many stories are in this? I don't even know. I think there's like 17 stories in the um, the work. So they're trying to escape from this pirate and they, they try to tempt the pirate by telling him that they have, um, they can give him a, sh a machine that will give him all the knowledge in the universe. And he wants this because he figures he can mine it for important stuff. And it does give him all the information. He's got to keep his eyes glued to this little screen where it keeps giving him facts. But the facts are all just these little tidbits of things. And they just keep coming and coming in this endless stream. And so it's, you know, the number of um, of laces on the shoes of this princess in this other galaxy. And that's like right up next to um, three things that you can do with uranium, which is right next to, um, you know, so all of these things and they're not sorted. So he just keeps his eyes glued to it because of fear of missing out and eventually he um they, they were able to escape because he just never looks away from it <laughs> so what i know right it's it was so so good i mean he he's it, it was prescient honestly so um and i love these stories so um and that's why i picked this i was actually looking for a section out of howell's moving castle Ooh, when i uh -huh. and i'm standing on in front of my ginormous uh bookshelves and i suddenly see the siberia and i said Oh, wait a minute. This is the book. This is the book to read from. <laughs> so that is so awesome. Yeah. Th this that, this story is good. <laughs> so is it is it a collection of short stories? This one's a collection of short stories. They were all written about these two inventors. So Stanislav Lem was writing in Polish, which by the way, can you imagine being the translator who got hit with that poem? <laughs> Okay. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> yes. So he was writing in Polish. He was writing behind the Iron Curtain. Okay. Now, if you want to criticize, you know, the Soviets and you're writing behind the Iron Curtain and you write a story criticizing the Soviets, that's going to be the last story you've ever written, right? You or don't the last one it. you've written outside of a gulag. Right, you, or even in the gulag, I'm pretty sure you, they don't hear from you again. So my father pointed out to me, and my father was, was really influential in the way that I began to approach literature. What Lem does is he starts, he makes it look like just basically low-grade science fiction. He makes his stories look like pulp science fiction. But in actuality, every one of these stories has something embedded in the background that is really like a critique 
of the society he's living in and the repressive atmosphere. He's working that in there without, I mean, and he could just deny it. If you say, no, it's just a poem about a robotic bard. What are you talking about? It's just a poem about, you know, a robotic idiot machine that's eight stories tall and and insists that two plus two is seven. I'm certainly not critiquing the Soviet Union, you know, but he pointed out to me that you've got layers that you can read to. So you can read just at the story layer, but then you could read it like, you know, the social layer. And then there's like the symbolic layer and you can go deeper and deeper. And, and that really changed the way that I approached literature. Cause I was like, you know, you don't want to have a lot of things that are considered literary right now. They avoid the story and the character level in order to go right for the thematic level but you don't need to do that. People will get your theme just as well, even if you're telling a story that looks on the surface like it's pulp fiction, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Oh, but they're going to get it. They will keep chewing over it. So that's one of the um, the reasons that I was inspired by by the Siberiad and why it's one of my perennials um, that I keep going back to. I'm going to need to get a copy because that just <laughs> blew me away. And it <laughs> And and obviously, I haven't read it, and I would love yeah. to read it for the point of it being a social commentary mm-hmm. on the Soviet regime and things yeah. like that. I know I've got um, Solzhenitsyn in my to-be-read pile right now. <laughs> Let's be honest that mm-hmm. sometimes when you can handle that social commentary through something humorous, mm-hmm. I mean, humor takes intellect. Yes. Yeah, right. Because you have to be able to turn things on their head. You can't have to be able to look at something and see how it could be and how it is and kind of juxtapose those two and do it in a surprising way. So yeah, it's and yeah, and so this engages you. It's not just funny. It's also um, it, it's also kind of an intellectually funny, but then also at the same time, you're like, oh, <laughs> he has um, another story, which I couldn't read for you because getting enough of it would have taken far too long. But it's like, um, it's the steely pips, the whole thing internally rhymes and the, the entire story. And it's it's awesome. But they end up, um, the Steely Pips are this little, um, they seem to be little uh, robots that um, they have a, a perfectly happy society where they're all part of a piece, right? They all they all contribute. They all do everything they want. And then this big robot comes and sits there and it, it threatens them and they don't know what to do about it. So Troll comes and the whole thing is very cleverly rhymed. It has, it has a really nice meter and everything. And then Troll, they ask him for help. When he finally comes, um, he sets up an office with a coffee maker and a filing cabinet. And they're like, what are you doing? So when the Steely Pips are narrating, not far from here by a white sun behind a green star lived the Steely Pips, illustrious, industrious. They hadn't a care, no spats in their vats, no rules, no schools, no gloom. That's how the story's written. When Truel actually engages the creature that's threatening the Steely Pips, it goes to, notice is hereby given that in RE, hindrance of tenant, as stated under revision stat C117 parentheses E-2KKP4 of the CTSP communication code. And he just keeps going from there. He And at the end of it, you know, like they keep sending letters back and forth. And finally he says, um, he sends something that says, um, it says the tenant may not appeal this ruling and it leaves. And then he takes down the whole apparatus and, and they're like, why are you doing that? He says, I don't want it to destroy you. It was a big machine that begins with a big B. And as, as the cosmos is the cosmos, no one's licked it yet. So it's a bureaucracy. He, he destroys it. And, and it's like, but he never says what he's doing. 
He doesn't, you know, it can look like Pulp Fiction. And you'd have to read pretty far in the book to pick this up. So I just find Lem very clever. Sorry, I could talk about him all day. I could also talk about Diana Wynne-Jones all day, but this is the book that I picked. So <laughs> that's what you're stuck with. Well, and I love that you mentioned Howl's Moving Castle, too. I haven't I haven't read the book, but obviously with book. my with my book with my uh, cat named Soot Gremlin sitting behind me we're <laughs> friends of Miyazaki in this house see the movie disappointed me cuz he 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 took a lot of liberties with it it was it practically was like a different story i've read um hell's moving castle at least 6 times um and oh, wow. i keep finding new stuff in it and just the way that diana Wynne jones lays out in the um in the early pages all of the themes and all of the secrets they're going to be blown open later on except that sophie doesn't know any of them and she's just living her life and so like the second or third fourth time going through i'm like oh she did really well with this you know she's hiding these things um sophie's assumptions are feeding everything that's happening around her and um so you don't she's unaware of her own magic but it's definitely at work you know um Mm. and so it's it's just such a good story um and the way that it resolves in the end and her her interactions with calcifer and of course howell is hilariously funny in the book he's um he's so melodramatic and so over the top you know he gets a cold i'm dying up here you know it's it's just such a good book it's it's definitely one of my favorites and also was given to me by my father when I was about 12 years old. So so it sounds like he was pretty impactful as yeah. far as your love of literature. Yeah, he was. I didn't like to read at all. And then one day I discovered the Black Stallion books and then um, my parents were divorced. So he would pick us up, you know, two, three times a week and we would go places. But so many times he would like have um, a paper bag in the front seat of the car from Walden books and he would give me one of the Black Stallion books and they would be there. So that was always cool. And then I would, you know, I, again, those ones I read like a million times. My aunt introduced me to Nancy Drew in okay. the second grade. Mm-hmm. And you, you never run out of those books. There's there's uh, quite a few of those. I still have all my Nancy Drews <laughs> and I have all my Trixie Beldens. I'm gonna hang on to those mm-hmm. for my girls. They're not quite they're not quite there mm-hmm. for reading independently those books, although mm-hmm. we read pretty challenging books to them. Like mm-hmm. we do read alouds as a family. Yeah. My girls have already heard The Hobbit and all of The Lord of the Rings and all of The Borrowers and all the Little House books. And now we just started Anne of Green Gables. So oh, that's a great having, one. Yeah. And I never read it as a kid. Oh. <laughs> so it's all like this huge surprise to me. So I'm really enjoying it. But it's it's incredible how much impact people can have just planting the seed of loving stories. Yeah. How significant in light of like what you're talking about, this commentary on the Soviet regime and things like that, how significant do you think the arts are in combating totalitarianism? I'm not a political writer myself because I just, I would actually prefer to stay out of it. I think ideally literature gives people a view to something better, to see the potentiality of their existence. Because of that, like, you can, if you can write about freedom to people who do not feel free, then they, it gives them some hope and it gives them something to strive for. Even if you're not saying, go ahead and do this. That's actually one of the, the issues I find with um, the current crop of literary fiction. When you have fiction that, you know, in the literary genre, um, I'm not talking about great literature of the past. I'm talking about, you know, nowadays when you have the books with the really long titles and, you know, um, everything is dismal, a lot of it is hopeless. There's a distinct lack of belief in the inherent goodness of, of human beings. 
in these stories. And I feel like that like kind of undercuts any desire for change. But if you can show people a world where the thing that they don't have is attainable, then it might inspire them to attain it. Even if you're not actively saying, go now go do likewise. People will say, well, why can't I have that? It can also, I mean, like you also have um, books that serve as warnings, you know, like um, A Canticle for Leibowitz is showing, you know, is definitely there to serve as a warning. I don't, I don't know that that helps as much, but those are the ones that people tend to think of as the political activist type things, the 1984 and Animal Farm, you know, where they're just basically out there to like tell people this is where we're going and it's terrible, you know. I think that there's a, the more subtle undercurrent, like when you can show people hope, it gives them something to work for and it gives them stories and it gives them someone to root for and maybe they find inspiration in that. I have been fortunate enough not to live uh, um, under totalitarianism. So, you know, this is just someone talking in a, uh, you know, in a second floor bedroom on wall to wall carpet in a heated house. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. From what you're saying, it seems to me that some of the freedom is internal, that some of the freedom isn't this externality. It isn't even necessarily political, but yeah. it's your own philosophy of hope. I, I think the only thing that keeps us going sometimes is hope, right? You know, that something will get better. You know, you've got, even if it doesn't get better, you can get through it. We need that. I, I think that's something that's, um, that we all cling to that. And, you know, so there's spiritual hope and then there's also just emotional hope, you know, where mm-hmm. you just get up again and do it again. You know, you get knocked down, you get up, you're, you know, thrown to the ground, everything got ruined, you can still start over, you know. And yeah, I've been in positions where I didn't want to start over, but you just get up and do it again. By the way, um, if you want some spiritual advice, um, it's this is it. The time to pray for perseverance is before you need it. <laughs> I tell this to my religious education students, and um, or I told it to my religious education students. I'm not teaching anymore, but um, that there was a point in my life where I remember uh, I was praying the St. Michael Chaplet, and I got to um, to the uh, the archangels where it says, you know, like uh, you're praying for perseverance and faith and all good works. And I was like, and I don't want to do anything. And then I thought, I have prayed this prayer every day for how long? I've already prayed for it. I don't need to, I don't need to mean it right now. You know, <laughs> it was already here. So you know, God can honor all those other ones. And, you know, cause right now I wouldn't have had the, the, uh, at that moment, I was thinking I wouldn't have had the, um, the desire to start praying for perseverance, but I'd already been praying for it. So there I was <laughs> and I could keep going, you know, start, start the ball rolling down the hill before you need it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. Um, I'm full no. of ridiculous tidbits like that. That's my life <laughs> and my brain. No need to apologize whatsoever. <laughs> well, and the thing, tying it back to the mm-hmm. um, the thing of hope is if a book can inspire hope and get that internal hope that can then be externalized out in society, mm-hmm. could the reverse also occur? And like why those hopeful stories are still important, even in our culture, that if we get if we internalize stories of hopelessness, mm-hmm. can we not almost suffer from a self-imposed totalitarianism? That, <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> that, that we can be imprisoned in a completely free place. Right. You're sitting in a cage that with the doors wide open and you refuse to leave. Um, yeah, I, I encountered a lot of stories like that um, in, my, uh, in college and my, uh, my graduate program in literature. Um, just lots and lots of stories where there was just 
like, why are these characters even trying? You know, they, they, the characters themselves were hopeless. They were like shallow, vapid people engaged in shallow, vapid struggles. And then at the end of the story, they, you know, had gotten what they wanted and discovered it wasn't what they wanted, but they were still going to keep plugging away at it. And I'm like, well, okay, why am I reading this? <laughs> like, why did I spend this time doing this? Yeah, it, it's, I think that would also be mutually reinforcing. Hmm. And yeah, that's not what I don't think that's literature at its best. I think we can, uh, I mean, I'm sure stories like that have a place, but a steady diet of them is probably not, not really good for one's psyche, I would imagine. After a while, you need some, some sunlight. Well, and I think that you can, I, I mean, I'm definitely not one who's afraid of um, exploring dark, hard situations. Like A oh, Canticle yeah. for Leibowitz is one of the finest yes. books I've ever read. And I'm like, this is science fiction gold, but more than that. Like, I think it's, everybody should read it. It's dark, but is it hopeless? I don't think so. At no, the end, it's leaving. not hopeless. You know, they, sh they shake the dust off their feet and they go. And you know that they're going to be carrying the truth out to other places. Yes, the characters, many of them met really horrific ends during that story. But on the other hand, you know, you still got a sense of the human spirit as something worth preserving and mm -hmm. people as, as, you know, creatures worth loving. Well, and I oppose that with, um, like, I really like Neville Shute's novels, mm -hmm. but I read one called On the Beach. And in the end of it, everybody either euthanizes themselves or someone else because of a nuclear apocalypse, that it was hopeless. Yeah. And and I was so upset because Neville shoots books, even if they deal with hard things like war or suicide or things like that, that they, they still have this, you know, burgeoning hope, even in the darkness. But on the beach, it, it was it was the flip side of a canticle for Leibowitz. And I, I made a rant on it. And I actually said, <laughs> this feels more like an apologia for euthanasia than it does um, mm -hmm. an anti-nuclear war right. story. Mm -hmm. And the, the, I, I think that when you can show the story with hope, I don't, I, I don't like false optimism because people can pick up on that in a heartbeat. Well, yeah. mm -hmm. But when you, like you said, the, the perseverance of the human spirit, that there are good things that are worth preserving, that they're, we are creative, mm -hmm. that we are, it, it, that, that there's ingenuity in us, even though we also use our ingenuity to do stupid things. Right. <laughs> um, there's just so much there. Oh, I love books. I love books. But you were also mentioning a chaplet that you were praying to St. Michael the Archangel. And yes. I just finished your book, okay. Perdition's Air, mm -hmm. which you write about angels. Yes. So. So. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with this idea of making a military <laughs> drama, except <laughs> it's with angels. So, um, all right. So nine days after my 16th birthday, this is a long story. Um, I, um, I finally picked up a book that when a friend of the family had given me and he kept bugging me to read it. It was St. Michael and the angels. It's a book by Tan. It is still in print. And I finally picked it up and I'm like, I'm going to read this just so that he gets off my back. Okay. So I brought it. I used to read on the subway going to school and back again. So the morning I would do the rosary and on the way home I would read. Okay. So, and I, you know, was trudging through it. The book is actually supposed to be 30 days of devotions. And I'm like, well, it's the only book I have with me right now. So I just started plugging through it. Okay. Um, like about the third day of reading this book, it's not very long. It was like the sky opened up and I just 
understood that there was this whole other world that I couldn't see and how awesome it was and how amazing. And I was absolutely taken. And you know how like when when you are absolutely gripped by something, the world around you sort of disappears? Mm-hmm. And you know how dangerous that is on the subway when you don't know where you are? Okay. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Okay. <laughs> so I sort of came to myself and I was sitting on a bench at the Bowling Green station, which is not any place that I would normally have gotten off the train. And I look around and everyone is out of the train. The whole train is empty because I guess they had put it out of service. And I'm just sitting there on a bench, which means that at some point or another, they stopped the train. They put it out of service. They told us all to get off the train. I got up and walked onto the platform and found a seat and continued reading without registering that any of that happened. Okay, that's how taken I was by the whole thing. So anyway, after I finished reading um, the, um, the book, I thanked God for my guardian angel. I started talking to him and I never stopped. And I feel like the, I owe that angel a drink um, <laughs> because <laughs> I talked a lot, as you can imagine. So anyway, that was when I was 16 years old. Right after that, I did start writing stories about angels because I was just so absolutely enthralled by everything. I started reading any book I could find that might have angels in it because like the tan catalog came to my house every month and I would look through it for books with angels, you know, so Pascal Parente's Beyond Space. But I also read a book that was three inches thick about purgatory because I figured, well, angels will be in that one too, right? So any book I could find that had, you know, that was Catholic and that had angels in it. Because I also knew you didn't want to go for like the new age weird ones that you know, I wanted to avoid that. A lot of these stories had their initial genesis back then and have just been getting published more recently. For this one, I hadn't written an angel book in a long time. And I was like, okay, so what are we going to write about? I had written um, about special ops for, sort of glancingly in one of the other books. And I thought, well, they sound like they'd be fun to write about. Let's do like a special op. But what kind of special ops would special ops do? And then I remembered that in um, in Sacred Cups, the demon Belior is bragging that he, um, he about an old man that he owned. The old man made an agreement with him and he always made sure that it rained on the man's farm so that the, farm, the guy could survive. And after he died, Bellior says, I made sure it didn't rain on his farm for six years until his grandkids remembered granddad's weird old practices. And now I own a family. And that's just a throwaway line in Sacred Cups. Um, But I was remembering that and I said, okay, what if we really went into intergenerational evil? Like, what if they really, you know, let's look at what these demons can really do with that. And special ops is going to try and start to, to get in in and short circuit this. So that's where that's perdition's errors is that um, a man has died after um, a lifelong, basically, or it's, you know, like 65 year pact with a demon. He dies. He's got three grandchildren who are his heirs. The um, his original contract passes down to the third or fourth generation. These guys now, I guess, are generation two, um, because his, his children have died. And now these are the grandchildren. Uh, and so this can now transfer to them. Special ops needs to prevent these three from continuing the pact. One of them is the CEO to, um, to the Fortune 500 corporation that Linus Ellington had started. One of them is a politician. He's a congressman. One of them is an upcoming actor. And so 
this, these are the three of them. There are um, two demons who are um, who are spearheading this. It's a seraph and cherub pair um, who are basically manipulating the toxic family dynamics in order to get what they want. And then you have the special ops team. It's headed up by Cosmiel. He's the head of the choir of powers, but he's burnt out and he does not realize it. <laughs> he is so burnt out and feeling like all of their cases are hopeless. His second in command is Safiel. And Safiel is awesome. I love him. He he invents anything. Like if you give him the, an impossible task, he describes his own job as I wait, I stand around waiting for Cosmiel to ask me to do the impossible, and then I do it. <laughs> um, there's um, there's Ariel, who's the um, who's the head of their intergenerational evil. She's their expert in interrupting that. And then there's the three guardian angels of the um, of the three humans, and that's that's your cast of characters there. So. I found it really interesting, and you kind of touched on it. You said the toxic family dynamic. I really liked the fact that you point out that even spiritual warfare doesn't exist strictly in a spiritual realm. There's the social experience. There's the psychological experience. There's physical manifestations of it. It's almost like we're integrated beings. Well, yeah, almost, right? (laughs) Body and soul and (laughs) spirit and all that. Um, Yeah, and I, I, I just, I'd read a lot about um about toxic family dynamics and stuff and so um it made sense that linus was pre-programming the grandchildren to accept the um the bond but he himself is in a toxic relationship with the demons and um and you know so he's and he's he's a toxic person himself so he's very jealous and so you've got all of these things the push pull you've got the golden child and the scapegoat dynamic going on with the kids um and then there's um Linus's um wife who he ignored and had effectively emotionally discarded her who turns out to have had a lot more power than any of them anticipated um we come to our relationship with god with the baggage of our um, of our past, of our upbringing, of our core beliefs, of the things we don't know we believe, um, of the things that have just been set up as so normal to us that we never questioned them, and in our own spiritual lives, then God sets about dismantling all of these things, like the the false beliefs, you know, the lie that we believe, you know, wholeheartedly, even though we don't know it's a lie, you know, we we believe these things, like I'm only um, I'm only worthwhile to God if I can produce things for Him. Or God will only love me if I am perfect. And we have, incul- you know, we, we've inculcated these from our own relationship with our own parents. And God then slowly sits about dismantling them for us. Like, I want to take this chain off of you. So let's, you know, so God will put us in a situation where he can take the chain off of us. Or we can cling to that chain. And God loves us anyway, but it's still there and holding us back. And so Cosmiel is, of course, dealing with a very big chain in there because he feels like all the failures that he's had in this incredibly difficult job have diminished his value in the eyes of God. And also that the fact that he's using a lot of demonic techniques in order to undermine the demonic techniques that their enemies are using, he feels has actually sullied him in God's eyes, even though that's not how God feels about him. It deals with this whole thing of, and especially in our culture, that it's a big question mark of whether we understand what love Mm -hmm. is at all. And if we can't understand it from a human perspective, how much more challenging will it be to understand from a cosmic perspective? Yeah, Yeah, because the the humans, um, like Anna doesn't understand love at all. She has love 
or she had love in her ex-husband and just discarded it because it didn't take the form she expected it to. She expected love to be borderline abusive. And when he loved her wholeheartedly, she couldn't accept it. You know, there's, there's so much of that going on. Cosmail does not realize that how much his, um, his underlings respect and love him. He always feels like he's let them down. You know, there's Jazaria who loves his charge forest when he's at the very end. And so what are you going to do? You only have a half hour left with him. What are you going to do? And he says, I can love him for one half hour more. I can love him. It, and at the end, that's all that's, you know, that's all that's left. And then, you know, is that enough? Can, will people accept that, you know, when you're face to face with God and I can love him is all that's left. Are you going to accept that? Or are you going to accept that God loves you? You know? Yeah, it seems like that's really the pivot point, is our understanding of love. But that wouldn't have said that huh. this was a love story at all, you know, because you've got demons and people going to hell and things like that. I mean, and there is no romance in it, obviously. It's it's all it's all like agape love um, and, and philos mm -hmm. love, but it's not, there's no erotic or romantic love in any of this. You know, you've got the, the way the children love their mother, the way that, you know, the way that Anna loves her brothers. It's, you know, the way that the, the um, special ops team loves each other. And, and then, of course, there's the way that God loves them all. You know, mm -hmm. when, you know, Anna is standing there in her room with, she has lost everything. And she says, Jesus Christ, son of God, do you love me? And God's like, do you really want the answer to that? <laughs> so... <laughs> That's that's the question. Are we prepared? Are we prepared to accept the answer to that? And God wouldn't. That was the thing when I when I went through it. I realized afterwards that God is actually asking for her um, her consent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is that's what God does. He's he could flood us, he could overwhelm us, and he doesn't. He waits for our consent. He waits for us to consent to him. Basically, he'll court us. Yeah, you, know, you get that whole hound of heaven thing going on sometimes. You know, he'll court us, but really he waits for our consent before he'll really open the floodgates with us. So I know it would be hard to pinpoint, or it is for me, but what exactly would you call the genre <laughs> of your Archangel Oh, this books? is this one's spiritual warfare fantasy. That's how I would put it. Um, it's very, I mean, talk about a niche subgenre. Um, <laughs> but a spiritual warfare fantasy. And I, I would say also um, The Wrong Enemy is, falls into that. Um, so does, um, it, I really, most of the series does. The, um, ironically, the first two books in the series feel more to me like women's fiction, even though there really aren't any women <laughs> in the first book at all. But the rest of the books in the series, I think, fall into the spiritual warfare zone. Um, there's there's fighting going on. My husband read um, Shattered Walls, and he called it superheroes in heaven um, because of the way that, that um, you know, they all have their own little powers, and they have their, their skills and stuff. Um, and this this book doesn't deal so much with the seven archangels of the presence, but the um, but four of the others do delve very deeply into the archangels of the presence. Um, you've got you know Gabriel, Raphael, Michael, and then also I you know I, I rounded out to seven with Uriel, Remiel, Saraquiel, and Raguel. That's those are your core characters. And um, for an arrow in flight, for sacred cups, shattered walls, and um, and annihilation. 
Shattered Walls is basically just a romp because um, Remiel goes down into hell because she's heard, she and Zadkiel go down into hell. She's heard that um, Satan is creating a secret weapon. So she wants to find out what it was. They find it. She accidentally sets it off. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, she and Zadkiel end up trapped on earth in human bodies along with one demon who is very angry about this, does not like this, and thinks they are his only chance at getting back to where he ought to be. So um, so that one, that one's just a romp. I, I had so much fun writing that story. That one, again, spiritual warfare, though, because it's angels battling demons and, um, you know, frequently, frequently demons battling demons, too, um, because they're, they're not really all on the same side. <laughs> They're not. They're all on their own yeah. side. Yeah, because that 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 jealousy and that mm -hmm. hatred—that's all that it could yeah. breed. What would you hope that your readers take away from your books? That angels are awesome, and that they're there. That the that the the spiritual realm is interacting with our realm very closely, and we're completely we're we're blinded to it. We don't see this. We don't it's very hard for us to know what's going on. You know, I would say in many cases it's impossible. You know, like you can't we have guardian angels. They love us a lot. They're working so hard to keep us free to make the decision and to embrace God and to accept grace. And we should be aware that there are also enemies that don't want us to do these things and that, yeah, that, that there's another world that's interacting with ours. I mean, we can see this in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where you have events on earth that are linked to the, um, to the liturgy that's taking place in heaven at the same time. So you have, you know, the angels in heaven, they, you know, they pray, then the humans pray after the angels. And then we've got things happening on earth in response to the prayers of the saints and the, and in response to the prayers of the angels and then angels are sent out to do things. And then again, the people, you know, the saints in heaven see what's going on again and it's all interacted. It's like this very seamless thing to us. It feels like we're very bifurcated, but from the other side, they're not seeing it that way at all. And so I would say to take away from, from all these stories that, that there are angels around, that they are real that they are um, individuals, that they have personalities, that they have strengths, that they want you in heaven more than you um, can possibly want it for yourself, that God loves you and that this is one of the, the gifts that he's given us to keep us, you know, safe, that there are demons out there who would not hesitate to do anything to hurt us and it's God's protection of us, you know, and frequently it does take angelic form when we're, when we're being protected, you know? So that's, that's what I would take. I would say I'd like people to take out of it. I know people who have, you know, begun devotion to their own guardian angels after reading stories of these, at least they told me they did. That's always nice. We've discussed that you're covering this niche of kind of spiritual warfare fantasy. And I attended a great talk that you did about writing fiction that's not preachy. Uh -huh. When you're writing a spiritual warfare <laughs> fantasy, how do you accomplish that without being preachy? That's a good question. Because you do. I want to know how. <laughs> well, because I'm not, I mean, 
the the spiritual truths that are showing up in the book are happening because they fit into the story. They're seamless with it. It's so I never I don't I never started any of these books with the idea that I'm going to teach people to be um, to forgive themselves or I'm going to teach someone to um, that you know communication is important in relationships or. Um, no, I don't start with that. I don't, that's not, but some of these themes show up and they come up after, you know, like they, they sort of burgeon up, but really I'm more interested in, you know, what, how does this, how is this character going to get out of this situation he's put himself into? That's where I'm trying to keep my focus the whole time. Um, and I feel like one of the things about preachy fiction is first, it stops the story. And secondly, it tends to supplant the actual progress of the story, because I need to, if, if I wanted to, to write a book specifically to preach that you must accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that means that I need to have um, a scene where this happens. And I need to treat the reader kind of like an idiot in that I have to assume the reader needs to be told that he should you know have a relationship with God. And all of that would tend to, you know, I think, diminish the story itself. Well, you know, I'm not I'm not a preacher. I, I just I feel like I have a story to tell and people may get things out of the story. I, I I feel like, you know, for example, I said I want people to take away from the story that there are angels out there and that it would be good to be more aware of them. OK, but at no point, you know, did I stop the story and have Jazaria say, you know, it would be really good if Anna would know that she has a guardian angel who loves her, you know, and have another angel come along and say, yes, if only she would say the guardian angel prayer to you every morning. That's not going, you know, that mm-hmm. would just sort of stop it. But instead, we, we can see what her life is like because she is very focused on the here and now and doesn't believe that there's a spiritual realm at all until it's basically hitting her in the face with the fact that there are demons and they want her soul and they can give her everything. You know, it's not even till the end that she suddenly realizes, well, maybe I do have a guardian angel. Like, you know, why would an angel, you know... It, it it makes sense, she thinks suddenly. Yeah, I guess there would be if demons paid attention to me. Maybe there's an angel who would pay attention to me too. You know, I I that last scene, by the way, I did that so that because I wanted to give her guardian angel a little of um a little gift because I put him through so much <laughs> in the course of the story. I needed to give him something to make it up to him. <laughs> he he did have a rough go. Really I have to go. say. So. And then the other question about story building I wanted to ask you was like when you talk about Lem's book and you talk about the different layers, yeah. like how do you build layers into your stories? They, they I, I, that I don't, they just sort of show up that I, I really don't know how that happens. Um, I have, I have gotten to the end of two of these books, not one of them was an angel book. One was, um, one was the father J book where I got to the end of the story and I couldn't finish it. Like literally the last chapter, I had one, maybe two pages left to write and I couldn't finish it. And I said, what is going on? Like I would, I, it was, it was like there was a creative wall and I knew what sort of needed to happen and I couldn't make it happen and you know, put the book away and walk away from it for a while. And um, so in the case of the Father Jay story, I realized that I didn't know what the book was about. Like I thought mm. that the book was about a disabled priest who was taking homeless kids in the rectory and needed to reconcile with his brother. That's what I, in my ignorance, thought the book was about. Okay. It turns out that the book was about me 
being a failed writer. And I didn't know this at the time. <laughs> but at the time, I'd had my first baby and we were in discussions about, you know, having a second baby. And um, and I knew that the first baby, he was a very high need baby. And um, I didn't have the mental wherewithal to keep writing. And I said to myself, I, and in the back of my mind, I realized that I was accepting that I was never going to write again if I had another baby that was equally high needs. I didn't realize he was a high need baby. You know, I just thought that all babies were like that. And I knew that in order to be the mother my kids needed, I couldn't possibly be expected to still write because, you know, so Jay, Father Jay, who was the disabled priest, what represented the new life that I was going to have to be in. He, Jay gave up all of his dreams in order to enter the priesthood. Jay's brother, who's estranged from him, represented the old life because he never really mm. gave up on the old person. He was very, um, he felt betrayed by Jay leaving him. And so here I am on the last pages of the book and I can't reconcile this. The book won't end because I can't reconcile what I'm still feeling in myself, which is that Jay, you know, like I, that I, I'm going to be losing everything if, if we, you know, have a baby. Right. And, um, so this, and this is all like unconscious. And when I finally realized it, I said, Oh, and so I write the final scene. And in that scene, Kevin, um, says to, to Jay, he says to father Jay, you know, shouldn't you bless me or something? And Jay says, no, I want you to bless me. And he sits down and puts Kevin's hands on his head. And Jay, Kevin's like, Kevin, who's an atheist, says, I don't even know how to do this. And he says, well, usually I just say something like, um, I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Kevin says, well, I can do that. And he blesses him. And that was basically giving me permission to move forward and have the baby that we felt that God was calling us to have. That was nowhere. I'd never planned that. <laughs> I didn't plan that at all. That was my unconscious packing things into the story and, you know, making it just basically feeding in the questions that were, that were just throbbing in the back of my head that I wasn't even aware of. Um, mm. And that's happened to me a few times. And, um, and so where I didn't know what the story was about until I was nearly done with writing the story. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, is that what it was about? Oh, it's about, you know, this other thing. And you know, like here all along, I thought it was about the plot and it turns out it was about something completely different. <laughs> so, and it sounds weird to say that a book about a priest and his estranged brother is actually a story about motherhood, but you know, there you have it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, and it shows that in a little way that God has his way with oh, our yeah. families, yeah. huh? Yeah, no, he, he absolutely <laughs> Um, and I think he works, I mean, with me, at least, I think that the Holy Spirit likes to engage with me that way, you know, that we can, we can make something together, you know, that what? we can make something together that the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit created, you know, God created the universe, right? It doesn't mean he's done creating, right? And so I can, he can kind of like work with me and we can create something and it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be hours, you know, it has to be mine. It has to be, you know, and God can kind of spin it up a bit and, you know, have fun with it. Right. And and if God can't have fun with us, then why would he have made us, you know, so we can play. Fun is part right. of and love. We, yeah, yeah. Let's play together. Let's, let's, you know, when we, when we create stories, when we enjoy stories, when we read stories, God's probably like playing with us, you know, like you read to your kids, right. God can enjoy it when we read a story too, you know, so. That's something that I've been 
that I was actually kind of thinking about today is the relationship between the words recreation and recreation. And the fact that that playfulness, that fun, that resting in joy is re that is recreation is recreating uh-huh. a part of us and giving us a fresh start. Yeah. So, what are you working on right now? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so, right now I'm kind of in a in a uh, a lull um, at the moment. So I have a story. It is also spiritual warfare fantasy, but it is from the um, point of view of a 13-year-old boy. Um, I have a story that I'm going to be cleaning up and publishing later this year. I am. Um, I, I have a pen name who writes sweet romances. I'm also writing a, uh, a sweet romance um, for that pen name because um, that one, I'm part of a multi-author series and that book has to come out on June 17th. So I really need to finish that. Um, so that's my current, my current uh, thing or those two is I'm going to have to get um, the, the spiritual warfare book is called a thousand generations. And it's about a uh, 13 year old boy. His father's a pastor um, and uh, his uncle dies in what looks an awful lot like a ritual to summon a demon and his cousin is left mute afterwards so despite the fact that everyone tells gage not to get involved with this he does he um wakes up in the middle of the night and uh, feels called to leave the house and goes outside and he finds these two djinn which he'd never even heard of before they are outside in the snow pulling up one of the threads that God uses to hold the world together. And um, they give him a piece of it. He's not supposed to be able to see him, see the djinn. He's not supposed to be able to see them at all. And they're very surprised that he can, but they give him a piece of the thread and um, they tell him, well, you should use that. And he's like, what is it? What do I even do with this? And they, oh, it's for protection. And they leave. Well, he has no idea what to do with this, but because he now has this, he figures you ought to use it. So he starts trying to figure out and of course gets engaged with the whole spiritual warfare. The fact that his um, brother's been, his cousin's been struck mute. His uncle is dead. His father, you know, is trying to protect him. So, um, and it turns out that there is a generational curse on that family as well. Um, or it might be a generational blessing. It's hard to tell. <laughs> so, oh boy. Yeah, so there's that one. There are angels in that story, but again, they're not the point of it all. They do show up and basically say to gauge things like, please stop doing this <laughs> so <laughs> but he's a 13 year old boy so he doesn't really listen and that'll be out later this year um getting a cover um we're in process making the cover and um after that i just need to like do you know get it um copy edited and then i think it's ready to go very exciting and when if people want to find updates on all of this work where would they uh, find that i don't really do my social media that much but um Good for you. No, well, it just is, you know, like my, my personal social media. Yes. But, um, I have a Facebook page, um, where I do, um, I update there and, um, I will also post my, um, my mailing list to the Facebook page. So, um, people can, you can read the mailing list without getting email basically, you know, cause you don't want to, if you don't want to be hassled with having email in your inbox, but once a week I do Thursdays with Jane, um, where I save something, you know, like I share some sort of weird story about my, my weird existence. Um, last time it was how I failed at making a scarf for Lent. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and I just, you know, so I, I do like one weird tidbit about my life plus a recommendation. But if I have more books and stuff coming up, obviously I'll mention them in the mailing list as well. All right. Great. Well, I think it's time for us to dig a little deeper with my 100 over-caffeinated questions okay. in the rando round. <laughs> okay. What do you sure. think? So 
I have a feeling that you probably know what these things are. My percentile oh, dice. Yes. Okay. And so would you like pink with mermaid sparkles or tie-dye? Tie-dye, please. All right. I love tie-dye. <laughs> it's very cheerful. I just don't like pink. I... <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a vote for tie-dye. It was a vote against yeah. pink. I see how it is. <laughs> Makes me Sorry. sad. No. I actually, I got very excited. I hit 500 downloads of my podcast. Oh. And so I actually... I'm considering buying another set of mm. dice to have more variety. But then I'm like, you already have two choices. You're going to make it more complicated. I'm like, but sparkly dice. Sparkly dice? Don't, don't underestimate the impact of, of sparkly dice. I love need, dice. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I am need, need the dice. dice. Are you tempting me to of more dice, am, Jane? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's no harm in owning more dice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. Well, and this doesn't include the two sets of D6s I have as Only well. Only two sets so, of D6s. You know. I mean, no, my husband Only... has a bag. It's a crown royal bag that is full to the top with dice. Yeah, oh, go, go right ahead and buy yeah. more dice because someone's going to... To celebrate 500 yes. downloads. But I got to have a like, bona fide yes. reason here. Come on. 500. Right, let's see what we get. You could also... And 502 and 503. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll wait till they okay. hit a thousand to get well, another fine. set. All right. So we have number okay. eight. What is your favorite place to read? Okay. I If I could just choose out of the entire world, it's, I have not been back there for 25 years, but there's um, the Andrew Dixon White Library in Cornell University is a library inside the Urus Undergraduate Library. And it's got wrought iron and it has these little desks in the nooks and you're like surrounded by books and you can go up three stories of, you know, because the stacks are, are one on top of the other and um, it's all wrought iron and it's beautiful and there's these green lamps and it's beautiful i would mm. i would read there any day of the week all yeah. right now that sounds inspirational awesome. we have 12 would you take a trip to antarctica yes yes but i would need somebody like to tell me what to do <laughs> well, me and karina fabian uh -huh. we, we want to okay. go and so we're thinking of taking a cruise we should take <laughs> you along we'll go on a catholic writers guild cruise to antarctica okay. make it so it's tax deductible all... and we can go like all of us should write books about antarctica afterwards or maybe we could all just get together and write an anthology and make it tax deductible and then go i like for it. it yeah okay okay so we can plan this in july we we're right. on it okay we'll have a powwow <laughs> 41. So your dice are skewing a little low there. No, 41's 41, not yeah, low. But I mean, you didn't have, I mean, you, 8, 12, and 41, you don't have anything in the upper end of the... Uh, That's okay. okay. That's why it's the okay, rando it, round, not the evenly distributed <laughs> round. We dice shame in my house, though. If, if something, if dice are skewing low, we will, we will scold them. We'll put them on, on pieces of paper and we will dice shame them and take pictures and post them. <laughs> <laughs> These dice refuse to roll. This dice rolls seven in a row, like seven, eight times in a row while we were playing, um, you know, <laughs> Settlers of Catan. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. We'll do like that. So, the, so the thief was just stealing everything. everything. Yeah, or, you know, this, this, oh, these my. dice refuse to roll sixes. They rolled lots of fives and lots of eights, but no sixes, you know. So we'll dice shame. Anyway, mm. go on. So you said 41. <laughs> Question 41. What makes you smile? Oh, puns. Um, cinnamon rolls. You have puns and buns. What more do you want? Good music. Um, finishing races. Awesome. Yeah. And I did read that your your 
you're uh, working on training for your second yeah, marathon. I, I just did the New York City half marathon and that was that was tough. But now I'm going to train for the Chicago marathon and I'm running with the um, with an order of nuns. Basically, there's a nun who's a three hour marathoner and she runs the, she literally runs the team, but she also runs the marathon. And so I'm going to have to fundraise and um, and then run 26 miles for for the convent. <laughs> I don't know if she still runs, but here in Spokane, there was a religious sister, and I think she was actually an ultra marathoner, but she might have just been a marathoner, but I can't remember her name. But yeah, really famous sister from Spokane, who was hardcore long distance runner. All right. Well, (laughs) this time has flown by, and it's time for me to ask you the last question I ask all of my guests, which is, what gives you hope right now? What gives me hope? That's a good question. That's why I use it over and over. <laughs> I I just I'm I'm because I see improvements in the world, little things that improve over time. Um, and I I don't hope doesn't need a lot to sustain it. I think um, seeing people becoming better people, seeing people work hard to overcome the issues that they're facing, seeing people grow from just the hard knocks life's thrown at them. That I think is what it was where I find hope most of the time is in the little progresses that, that we have around us. Um, and that, you know, that there's, that there's healing that takes place, even if it's just micro healing and all of those things are what give me hope. That's awesome. Even the small progresses are progress. Especially the small progresses. Cause a lot of them mm. are very hard fought and hard won. And, you know, when you see those, you know, that there are still good things happening. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me for Jane Squared. Yes, <laughs> thank you for having me on. <laughs> if you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.